0: Do you want to say something about her? Should I? You could. People usually do. It's called a eulogy. What do I say? It's up to you. You could tell a story. Mm -hmm. What kind of story? Whatever you like. You know how when you take one of your pictures, you capture something forever, just the way it is? Stories do that, too. When we die, we turn into stories. And every time someone tells one of those stories, it's like we're still here for them.
1: Hello and welcome to Narratively Speaking, where we explore the powerful effects of narrative on human consciousness, the ways it can be wielded by our governments, institutions and corporations via mass media, and most importantly, how we can use that power to co-create our ideal world through collaboration, art and story. I'm your work in progress host, Harv, and in this episode, we're going to talk about value. Let's challenge the narrative together, shall we? First of all, apologies for the episode being, uh, well, I suppose it can't be late because I'm not on a schedule, but um, later than I anticipated, I uh, Alexandra Daddario released a vlog today. Uh, I had to watch it. That's pretty much the, the cause of the delay. Uh, it's nothing to do with, like, for instance, a lack of inspiration or um, poor work ethic. It was just that Alexandra Daddario video. She's very beautiful and I have to watch them several times. Uh, she hadn't hadn't logged for a while. It just it caught me off guard. So um, that's that. And I refuse to bore you with a podcast business, and yet I will open with a dumb joke like that. So that's how we roll here at Narratively Speaking, and uh, that's what we value. Brought it back to the topic. So brilliant. So I thought the best way to discuss something as generalized as a concept of value would be to take what was said in the introduction video for this, which is up on the YouTube channel now, you should watch it before this, and use that as a premise for discussing it in a little bit more detail. So the basic premise of the video was to derive value to a human being. You should take what's special about human beings in nature and use that to determine some measure of value. So I suppose the premise here is that something that is rare is inherently more valuable which is never better exemplified than Alexandra Daddario, who is a redhead and uh, b- has beautiful, big blue eyes, perfect breasts, uh, mostly personality, of course, because I'm not an asshole. But man, those, those breasts. <sighs> anyway, what was I talking about? Uh, yeah, rarity, value. Alex, if you listen to the show, uh, hit me up. I'm, I'm not a creep. So um, we live in a society where we're told that money is our agreed upon method of assigning value. And to some extent that works. I'm a believer in the free market, although I don't believe it solves every problem in the world. Salaries being an obvious example of that where the game is for an employer to pay you less than the value that you create for the company. Nothing wrong with it, that's just how it is. And as we head into this storm of inflation that's been created by the irresponsible monetary policies of reserve banks around the world, it should be quite clear that money as a measure of true value is a deeply flawed concept. And speaking of reserve banks, am I the only one who sees that as a kind of global franchise like McDonald's or Burger King, but one that's not offered to the public and instead assigned to members of wealthy banking families in true nepotistic fashion, like Hey, Winchester, you flunked out on university due to being a product of years of cousins marrying cousins to keep the money in the family. Not to mention that little bout of syphilis that we all seem to have back in the pre-Penicillin days. I'll be giving you the Reserve Bank of Luxembourg. Yes, that's right, Luxembourg. I know you wanted the Czech Republic because the women are hot over there, but we're giving that to Harry because he's not as much of an entitled little prick as you turned out to be, my ungrateful, lazy useless son. Honestly, it makes me sad. I killed those twin girls so I could have a male heir. Maybe they would have turned out better. Anyway, you get Luxembourg. Fuck you. So let's rule money out as a measure of value and try to come up with something that we can work with that'll be a little bit more effective in measuring true value. And at this point, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking true value. It's love, isn't it? Love. Of course it's love. It has to be love. If it's not love, what else could it possibly be? And yes, I mean, look, love, love is great. I love love. I mean, love is uh really, really, really nice. But if we go back to our criteria about something being unique in nature, I don't know. We have lovebirds, they they love each other. I mean, if you ever owned a pet dog, I think we can be pretty certain that uh, that puppies experience love. I'm sure monkeys do in their own way. Um, dolphins, whales, I mean, whales sing to each other. They must have love in their big blubbery hearts. So it's not exactly the most evolved thing about a human. And here, I guess, is where I introduce the idea of evolution, which is, If we're the top of the food chain, the things that are different about us are the most evolved aspects of our species. Love is definitely up there, but so is Zumba. hummingbirds they dance, don't they? I don't know what hummingbirds do. Anyway, I'm sure I'll come off a little jaded, saying that love isn't the most evolved thing about a human. But allow me to offer alternatives. And uh, I'll avoid delving into my love life too deeply because you'd love that, wouldn't you? That's what you're here for, isn't it? You just want to hear my fucking confessions of sexual depravity, the kinds of kinks I'm into. Do I like a bit of Louis C.K.? Do I prefer a bit of Chris Brown? I do I think of that, isn't he? He's, he's a wife beater. This is getting weird. Uh, let's move on, shall we? Um, so we've talked about money. We've talked about love. Themes of a thousand rock songs and uh, psychological papers. You know, this, this question should already be answered. And, uh, and it is. It is already answered. I know I, I learned it in school and I'm sure you did too. So let's stop beating around the bush, shall we? And uh, just go straight to the source. Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. This is science, so it'll uh, it'll give us the answer. Um, I'll just pull it up in the browser here. Let me see. All right, so we've got physiological needs there right at the bottom. Well, then that means uh, eating is the base need. And of course the way Maslow's hierarchy works is in a hierarchical manner because it's hierarchical and it's a hierarchy. So just wanted to uh, make sure that was stated very clearly and uh, intelligently. Right above that, you've got safety uh, because if you're hungry, you're more likely to take risks and be unsafe, which is incidentally why I make a point to feed my sexual partners before I allow them to start humiliating me. Uh, Above that, you've got love and belonging. So Maslow's agreeing with me so far. Love's good, but is it great? No, it's not. Uh, Above love and belonging, that means better than love, is esteem. And uh, esteem refers to the respect and appreciation of others. Better than love. So if someone loves you, um, you know, suck ass. But if you respect me, then uh, I value that more, apparently. That's, That's according to Maslow. You know, he is the authority on these things. So, Enough about the rest of the hierarchy because that's garbage. Let's go straight to the top and find out what the most valuable thing is to a human being. And of course, everybody knows this one it's self actualization, which I remember when I learned it in school, it meant very little to me. But now, now that I've lived 46 years and have developed myself and my intelligence and my depth of knowledge uh, and read millions and millions of web pages, self-actualization still means very little to me. So
0: So in terms of the definition, we're going to pull from Abraham Maslow's classic definition in his 1943 article about this. He describes self-actualization like this. The tendency might be phrased as the desire to become more and more what one is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. So self-actualization is a need. And as the army's slogan back in the day used to talk about it, join the army, be all that you can be. In other words, we want to become everything that we are capable of becoming.
1: That's pretty interesting because uh, previously the opinions of others were important. Once you uh, get to a stage where you value the opinions of others, you should value them less later to progress further. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Maslow's not contradicting himself there. It makes perfect sense. It's a progression. So look, just get on board because Maslow was taught in school. So it must be good. Uh, This is Harvey from the editing desk. uh, Later on, I guess it'd be remiss of me to at this point not mention the possibility that family is an extremely valuable thing to a human being. And I'm not just saying that because it's Father's Day today and Dad may listen to this. In fact, uh, he'll be here in uh, a few minutes to pick me up. He may even be hearing this through the door. However, that's not the reason I'm saying it. Family's uh, of course, an important value to a lot of human beings. Uh, it's universal. However, eh, you know, I mean, if you go back to the criteria about being different, I mean... The animal kingdom, you know, has a lot of familiness in it, doesn't it? As far as making us unique in nature or being something that's the product of late stages of evolution, not so much. Uh, Families are a dime a dozen, actually, to be honest. Let's be uh, as frank as we can about it. We've had them for ages. No biggie. Uh, And we want to go beyond... Maslow's hierarchy family is probably in the acceptance area somewhere, so it's nowhere near the top. Uh, Again, Maslow agrees with me. Science wins again.
0: And I want to go on and quote a different part of that article. Even if all these other needs are satisfied, he's talking about the rest of them below it on the pyramid, we may still often, if not always, expect that a new discontent and restlessness will soon develop, unless the individual is doing what he is fitted for. A musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write if he is to be ultimately happy. What a man can be, he must be. This need we may call self actualization.
1: You can find lots of things online articles, videos, courses purporting to quantify value. Quite a large majority of those are inspirational pieces. Attempting to instruct managerial types on how to get their workers to work harder. As far as I'm concerned, that's just mind control nonsense. Make your employees feel valued. No, just pay them a salary. That's the deal. It may not be that romantic or inspiring, but it's probably the reason they took the job. Yes, it can make their work more enjoyable. However, it doesn't replace compensation. I think it's possible that uh, Maslow and all of these other people who've been looking into what people value and what motivates people are making one fundamental error, which is they're allowing themselves to be persuaded by what people say is their true motivation. And I think if we're going to examine this question accurately and honestly, we need to look at people's actions to determine what they truly value, as opposed to just listening to what they say. I did a little bit of research during the week using my own family as guinea pigs. Uh, we're out to dinner and uh, I asked everybody at the table, how many of you would say that you enjoy your job? And almost everyone said yes. And I said, okay, uh, let me put it in another way. How many of you would continue to do your job uh, after you retire? And of course, the answer was very different. At first, everyone kind of said, yeah, I, yeah, 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 I probably would do something, you know, um, along the lines of my job. And when I questioned a few of the others a little bit more, it turned out that they would do less and less of the tasks that they do during their job if they had complete freedom to choose their activities. But we know this is how things work with people, right? If you ask uh, the average person on the street what they value, they'll say, I value uh, world peace and a fair go for all and uh, inclusion. An accurate assignment of gender pronouns. And while they may in some way value those things, that's probably not 100% what drives them emotionally at their core. And this takes us back to the very first episode of Narratively Speaking, which uh, I believe I spoke about sexual signaling and how many human actions can be seen through the lens of sexual signaling, not just plain old virtue signaling. And we seem to do these behaviors even if there is no opposite sex present which in some cases is quite disturbing if you start seeing things that way because you start wondering in social situations whether you might just be sexually signaling to people who you have absolutely no interest in shagging. And if that doesn't make your next community book club meeting, this whole other thing, I don't know what would. But fear not, it's probably just old habits dying hard. And I do not mean that as a pun. So what do people do when you remove all objects? You give them as much money as they need, as much time as they need, and let them just make a decision on what to do next. And if you're like me, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, a long holiday. And when you boil it all down, a holiday is just sanctioned experiences. And while uh, when I go on holiday, I tend to avoid tourist destinations and prescribed activities, I'm still trying to go for an experience. I just don't want an experience that's been pre-selected for me. And maybe in a way that preference validates the value of experience, because I don't want my experience sullied by repeating the experiences of others. I want my trip or holiday or whatever to provide an experience that's unique to me. And I suppose if one was so inclined, one might be able to relate this back to the idea that we're all little fragments of God consciousness, just trying to understand ourselves, because if experience is valuable and experience is knowledge, and of course, experience is story, then we're getting in the vicinity of the premise of narratively speaking. And I don't want to sound arrogant, but fuck Maslow. This is Harvey's hierarchy of needs. So you are welcome.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy.
1: I suppose I picked this topic as a way to kick off the second phase of this podcast because it serves as a useful recap of the premise of the podcast to start. But you may have noticed that post-COVID, the wording of the intro has changed. And that's because, to some extent, so is the purpose of the podcast itself. And that's not to imply that COVID was the impetus for the new direction. It wasn't. This is something that I've believed for a very long time. If anything, COVID-19 just highlighted to me the importance of looking at narrative as a controlling mechanism that transforms and shapes our society. I suppose at this point, we could recall the original words I spoke or screened really into a a very poor quality of mic, so apologies for that. But the words that started this whole journey. I think underestimating the importance of story and the human experience is a fucking big mistake. Story is a part of our very fabric infused in our very nature. When you meet a new person, it's always... Hey, what's your story? Or when you meet a new dude who acts like a cunt, you say, what's his fucking story? We sit around campfires and tell them. Our kids demand to hear them before they go to bed each night. And then in turn, as kids, we make up our own. We've built massive libraries that house thousands of them. And borders, governments, and religions are all built around them. Which means, in a sense, it's what we fight our wars over. You know, after all these years, I wonder, do those words hold up? Have we done them justice in exploring the importance and power of story? It's hard to say from my vantage point, to be honest. I just sit down in front of a mic and speak these weird thoughts that come. And as the small group of people who seem to listen to this podcast regularly know, that doesn't always result in a polished or even vaguely coherent presentation. But I remember one of my most transformative experiences was in watching the Peter Joseph movie, Zeitgeist. And it wasn't because the information in that movie all resonated with me or that I believed every single fact highlighted in it. In fact, now I look back on it and see it as a fairly flawed and incomplete piece of work, admittedly with a Ripper soundtrack. But I'll never forget the effect the section on war had on me, the images and explosions and whizzing bullets and people being used as cannon fodder. They all hit me emotionally. But it was the statement after that Peter Joseph made that stuck with me most. Since the
2: inception of the Federal Reserve in 1913, a number of large and small wars have commenced. The three most pronounced might be World War I, World War II, and Vietnam. World War I. In 1914, European wars broke out centered around England and Germany. The American public wanted nothing to do with the war. In turn, President Woodrow Wilson publicly declared neutrality. However, under the surface, evidence now shows that the financial powers behind the administration were looking for any excuse it could to enter it. In a conversation with Colonel House, Wilson's advisor, and Sir Edward Gray, the Foreign Secretary of England, regarding America and the war, Gray inquired, What will America do if Germans sink an ocean liner with American passengers on board? House responded, I believe that a flame of indignation would sweep the United States, and that by itself would be sufficient to carry us into war. So on May 7, 1915, a ship called the Lusitania was sent where German military vessels were known to be. And as likely expected, German U-boats torpedoed the ship, exploding stored munitions, killing 1200 people. World War II. On December 7th, 1941, Japan attacked the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, triggering US entry into that war. After 60 years of surfacing information, it is now clear that not only was the attack known well in advance, it was outright wanted and provoked. Roosevelt's Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, documented a conversation he had with Roosevelt. The question was how we should maneuver them into firing the first shot. It was desirable to make sure the Japanese be the ones to do this so that there should remain no doubt as to who were the aggressors. On December 7, 1941, Japan was allowed to attack Pearl Harbor, killing 2,400 soldiers. Before Pearl Harbor, 83% of the American public wanted nothing to do with the war. After Pearl Harbor, one million men volunteered. Vietnam. The United States' official escalation and entry into the Vietnam War came after an alleged incident involving two US destroyers being attacked by North Vietnamese PT boats in the Gulf of Tonkin. This is known as the Gulf of Tonkin incident. This situation was the catalytic pretext for massive troop deployment and full-fledged warfare. One problem, however, the attack on the US destroyers by Vietnamese PT boats never happened. Former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara stated years later that the Gulf of Tonkin incident was a mistake, while classified documents released years later show that it was a farce, manipulated for the purposes of war. September 11th was the jumpstart for a hegemonic agenda, enabling the possibility of constant global warfare. It was a staged war pretext no different than the sinking of the Lusitania, the provoking of Pearl Harbor, and the Gulf of Tonkin lie. In fact, if 9-11 wasn't a planned war pretext, it would be an exception to the rule. It has been used to launch two unprovoked illegal wars, one against Iraq and the other against Afghanistan. However, 9-11 was a pretext for another war as well,
1: the war against you. Now, I had never heard of a false flag operation until I heard it suggested in Zeitgeist. But it had never occurred to me that false stories could be used to manufacture public support and mobilize soldiers into war. In fact, as a kid who grew up in a short period of relative peace, or at least so it seemed to me, it had always puzzled me that anyone would be interested in participating in a war. I could only guess that the big wars had happened in like a different time, that somehow I was part of a new generation who had evolved past that. And as I record this on the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, it's almost ridiculous how naive that thought turned out to be. Conspiracy aside, the narrative of 9-11 created a cultural zeitgeist that changed everything about how we understand global conflict. Those of us who had naively believed that war was in our past were asked to suddenly reconsider in the face of a genuine threat to our lives. We could all imagine being in those towers as they collapsed. And as such, the threat was palpable. Did Muslims hate us for our freedoms? We didn't even know the difference between Afghanistan and Iraq. They were other and they had done this terrible thing. It was suddenly so easy to see them as an enemy, the new boogeyman, and to hate them. But it always seemed wrong to me. I kept reminding myself that I had probably met Muslims worked with them. And that people were just people. Most of us wanted the same simple things out of life. This was something I'd learned really early on. And it was one of my universal truths. The story around 9-11 conflicted with that. So when I saw zeitgeist, something clicked or maybe broke inside me. As you might know, I hate the language surrounding the so-called truth movement, the thing about them being awake and everybody else is asleep. But I'll tell you, it sure did feel like waking up. Not only were we being manipulated with a very dubious story surrounding 9-11, but in all probability, the scary men who flew the planes were probably just propagandized with a different story. Even if the event itself had happened just as we were told it did, we were being played. We were being led to hatred and murder. So if you're not yet convinced of the value of story, I submit to you one simple premise. There are a group of people, call them what you like, the elite, the oligarchy, the investment class, the rich and powerful, to whom story is an extremely valuable commodity. They know that through story, they can control us. And because they are few and we are many, that's their best tool for maintaining their positions of power. And because we are trusting and generous and naive at heart, we fall for it every time. But story is not a weapon. It's just a tool. Like a knife can be used to slit a man's throat or open a delicious can of bacon bits. Story can be used to both attack and defend our consciousness. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to wield story ourselves we're going to challenge their narrative and co-create our own. We all create this mental model of how the world works. And whether it's simple or complex, negative or positive, chaotic or conspiratorial, that model is a choice we make and it matters. So let's value our stories. Let's cultivate them like a community garden and fill them with color and light and Yeah, okay, if you insist, love, even if sometimes we need to lie to ourselves a little to make it happen, and that way we can challenge the narrative together. you know what? Fuck love. I'm not jaded, but fuck love. All love gets you as an empty wallet, a bundle of memories that make you want to claw your eyes out with a fucking cheese grater and a pet cavoodle who doesn't know which is his true home because he has to spend every first and third weekend of the month at his mother's shitty apartment. God, my makeup's
0: running.